guys, and welcome to episode 29 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode, and we've got a question answer episode planned for you, but first we're just going to give you a bit of a rundown for what's been going on for about the last two weeks. So Jack, what's been up with you? Yeah, so we haven't chatted to you guys for about two weeks because we had Steve on last week. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you check it out. Yeah, we got a great response from that episode. People really loved it. It was um, pretty damn epic to have Steve on the show. Yeah, so I've actually started my deload this week, and this is my third deload of the year. Each time, I prefer to auto-regulate my deload, so basically decide to do it when I feel like I need it. And per chance, it's actually fallen on the after the ninth week of training each time. So that's kind of a reassurance to me that my, I guess my body is consistently telling me that it needs a deload. So as opposed to needing it like on week six, week eight, and then week 12 or something like that. So I'm glad it's consistent. But yeah, just going through this, I don't really like deloading. It's a bit boring, but just got to get it done. And yeah, back to normal training next week. Little bit of a variance in exercise selection for this next training block because obviously Chair and I are training at World Gym now. So a lot more equipment to incorporate into the program. And yeah, try also trying a slightly lower volume approach. And I'll interested to see how that impacts my strength and recovery as well. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm um it's right now this week because obviously Jack and I go to the gym together. Sometimes it can be difficult when one of us are deloading because Jack will finish his workout like way before me. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I still got like an hour left. So um Jack just tries to extend it out. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. <laughs> I'm sorry to make you wait. I'm just, man, I love training at World so much. And our like sessions have been going up to like three hours because I just never want to leave. I just want to keep training. And oh, it's really, really good. So has anything else been going on with you with any client updates? No, all my clients are doing really well. And yeah, so I have one client, Joseph, in the US, who's just started his prep for INBA Olympia, the nat- Natural Olympia, which is really exciting, and Lockie's Season B competing, and a few others lined up for competing next year. So, yeah, I love it when people come to us with time to spare to compete, so we can really set everyone up to do an amazing job, as opposed to just coming with 20 or weeks or less to spare. So Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, give yourself time. You can never have enough time. And your clients, they're just looking phenomenal. Yeah, they're, they're doing really good. Mm. Mm. And so how's been everything with you? Yeah, everything's been really good. So for those of you who follow me on Instagram, you would have noticed that I ended my eight-week cut this week. Woohoo! Really exciting. So really happy with the results. So I started my cut back on the 7th of May and I was 70.7 kilograms. And then I ended it on this Monday mornings and I ended up at 66.5 kilograms. And I remember a few weeks ago, you know, saying on the podcast that like, oh, you know, it'd be nice to get down into the 65s, but To be honest, weight is just a number, and as a physique competitor, I am more focused on body composition. So, and to be honest, I'm really happy with the results because a 4.2 kilogram loss in eight weeks, you know, that comes out to be 
close to half a kilogram per week. And given that I was 70.7 kilograms at the start, if you take 1% of that body weight, which is around 0.7 kilograms, I pretty much landed between that 0.5 to 1% of body weight lost per week, which was really, really good. And yeah, I'm just feeling amazing, to be honest. Like, And I was able to maintain my training performance throughout the entire duration of the cut. And especially, I think my performance even increased, especially after joining Worlds and, you know, just such an epic atmosphere to train in. And, oh, I feel great. And so my macros, when I was doing my cut, they stayed the exact same the whole time. I was basically on 150 protein, 270 carb, and 40 fat throughout that duration. And now I've come back up to maintenance calories, basically kept protein at the same around 150 fats are still at 40 but I've brought carbs up to 370 and man I'm just buzzing like because my body's been in a deficit now for you know eight weeks two months now that I have these extra carbohydrates I'm just like subconsciously I'm just like moving all the time and I feel so damn good like yesterday, Jack and I opened the gym and um, we were playing some Kaigo music in the morning and just like my body couldn't stop swaying and moving and I couldn't stop smiling and oh, I'm, I'm just buzzing. I, I know what it feels like, you know, like when my clients are always telling me when they have their high days and they just have so much more energy. I'm just filled with glucose. <laughs> but yeah, I feel great. And so I plan to maintain my weight I'm going to give myself around a one kilogram leeway just to account for, you know, changes in glycogen and hydration status. And even right now, after increasing carbs by 100, so I'm now at 370 grams per day, my weight's still only 67 kilograms. So it's only gone up by 500 grams, which I'm perfectly fine with. So plan to maintain that for these next seven weeks or so. And then I will start my 2020 competition prep on the 31st of August. And frick, I'm so damn excited. So yeah, life's looking good. Oh, and as for like body composition measurements and stuff, obviously skin folds went down, but my waist measurement went down by seven centimeters and I was able to maintain the circumference of my hips slash my glutes. So that's quite a success on my part. All those hip thrusts really paid off. So yeah, things are looking good. And honestly, I think that we're just at like the best point in our lives right now because uni is over. We graduate next Thursday, which is exciting. So we've peaked. It's only going to get worse from here. No, it's definitely not going to get worse, but this is the peak so like of so far. I don't know. I feel so good. Like literally we can just train and we're taking on more clients. We can do casual shifts at the gym spend more time together, you know, more days in the sun, like, oh, life is really, 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 really good right now. So yeah, I'm on top of the world and I'm filled with a lot more potatoes. (laughs) So we are going to get into some questions now. So what's the first one? So the first one's by Lawrence and he asks, how are the macronutrients actually calculated? Like how do they work out the amount? So I think this was in reference to two episodes ago where we did why you'll never hit your macros perfectly. So if you haven't listened to that, I won't tell you now so you can listen to the episode. So yeah, essentially there's a couple of different methods in order to work out the calories and also the macros in a product. 
So if you don't know already, uh, one calorie raises the temperature of water by one degree. And that's how they basically calculate the calories. So what they do is dehydrate the food. So say if it's like, I don't know, a... Oats. Oats. <laughs> say if it's like an oats, so they dehydrate the oats and then they uh, burn it. And then they basically use that to figure out how much did that raise the temperature of the water. And then that's how they use that in an equation, not 100% sure, to figure out the calories. Yeah, we're going to rely on food scientists <laughs> yeah. to do their job for that one. <laughs> but it, it, it makes sense. And Tara will explain how they calculate the macros. Yeah, so, so that's for calories. So how they actually calculate the macros is, for example, they might take a food because every food generally has carbohydrates, protein, and fat in it. So let's say that we take oats, which definitely have those three macronutrients. What these food scientists would do, they use a range of different chemicals. For example, they might weigh a certain amount of food, so 100 grams of oats, and then what they would do is add a substance called ether, and that will actually help to dissolve the fat away from the oats. And then they would weigh that amount again and subtract that from the original weight, and then that would be the total amount of fat in the food. And then the, what they would do to calculate the amount of protein in that food is they have to add sulfuric acid, and then that helps to create ammonia. And from that, they can do their fancy little food science equations and figure out how much nitrogen's in that food. And as we know, nitrogen is a component of protein, so they can work out how much protein's in that food. And then following that, they really just have the carbohydrates left. And I think they can add a few more chemicals to figure out the carbohydrate amount and then also separate total f like the fiber from the carbohydrates but yeah i think the main thing here is that there are thousands of products on the supermarket shelves and i really don't think that they're doing this for every single product so i think what they've actually done is probably you know there's a huge database available but they just test individual ingredients so individual foods those all go into the database and then when a product you know a company wants to make a certain product what they'll just do is grab like the ingredients from that database and then combine them all together and do some equations to figure out the total calories and macronutrients estimated to be in that food and because this is an estimate and you know these foods are taken from averages of averages that really comes into why there can be up to a 20% deviation from the true amount of calories and macros in that food. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think they do many of the formulations anymore. It definitely is mainly using the databases. And you can even uh, use a database online I, for free, I'm pretty sure, to, that startup companies use to check the macros of their own products. So, yes. Yeah, so hopefully that answers your question. Jack and I did take one food science course in uni, but we're certainly not food scientists. Mm. <laughs> so the next question is, is it safe slash healthy to use nicotine gum for appetite suppressant? Now, I thought this was a really interesting question, especially because you mentioned nicotine gum instead of just normal gum. Now, nicotine is known as an appetite suppressant, and that's also why, you know, smokers, they generally, when they start smoking, a lot of people actually lose weight because their appetite is suppressed. Now, in the research around nicotine, it shows that nicotine itself might not 
it's not necessarily harmful. So for example, nicotine isn't associated with any form of chronic disease or cancer or anything like that. The only downside is that you are becoming addicted to something. So you would be becoming addicted to the gum, which in itself probably isn't very healthful. No one necessarily wants to be addicted to anything unless it's the gym. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, so what I would say is that perhaps you could consider instead of nicotine gum, maybe just chewing normal sugar-free gum because anecdotally, and speaking to a lot of other people too, this is quite common for dieters and especially people in comp prep to regularly chew gum between meals because sometimes this can help to suppress their appetite and distract them, you know, because you're constantly chewing and then you almost feel like, you know, you're chewing on food. Only thing to watch out for is probably the sugar alcohols in gum. One, they do contain calories, so you do have to account for those. Each gram of sugar alcohol usually contains somewhere between two and four calories, so almost similar to carbohydrates. But also consuming too many sugar alcohols can give people an upset tummy, diarrhea, it can't be. And some people just experience a lot of bloating and discomfort too. But I'd say if you are going to chew gum, maybe just go for the normal sugar-free gum so that you don't become addicted to it. But nicotine itself isn't unhealthy. Yeah, personally, I would only be using it for a very acute period like if you have a very short-term goal like a competition prep and otherwise I probably I probably wouldn't even use standard gum to suppress appetite because psychologically if you intentionally do something to suppress appetite you are therefore just going to automatically be thinking more about it so you're going to be thinking about food while chewing your gum so as opposed to using another method to just distract yourself so if that makes sense but that's my take on it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I remember when I started our contest prep last year, at the very beginning, I was actually chewing quite a bit of gum because I was like, oh, I'll satiate myself or I'll distract myself between meals. And it kind of got into just a weird habit. And like, I'd always expect it, like right after I would finish a meal, I'd always grab a piece or two of gum. Do you remember this? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know, I I didn't really like building that habit. And I will admit at the very, like when I decided to break it because I was experiencing some gastrointestinal upset and it was really influencing my weigh-ins. So I'm like, you know, I'm just going to cut out the gum. But because I'd built up that habit, it was kind of difficult at first. And I'd imagine it would be even more difficult if I was actually addicted to the gum because it had nicotine in it. But yeah, each to their own. Very personal for that. So the next question is by Laura Peters. And she asks, what are your thoughts on vegan meat alternatives as a source of protein and general thoughts on the ingredients used in them? Yeah, so I think that vegan meat alternatives are honestly just fine. The ingredients used in them, most of them are soy-based, so soy protein, but they'll also have a combination of, you know, other wheat proteins, so gluten and other plant proteins as well. So there's going to be like hemp in there, there's going to be lentils, there's going to be beans, 
Are there any? Can you think of anything else? Not really. Oh, maybe like rice and yeah. pea protein. It's usually going to be a combination of different plant proteins um, mixed with, you know, stabilizers and maltodextrin and a bit of oil and stuff. Because we have to remember that they're trying to mimic meat. So food scientists and food manufacturers need to create a product that mimics the texture and the taste of meat. So it is going to be obviously more processed than regular meat. Not that that's necessarily an issue. But yeah, honestly, I think it's just fine as long as there's a combination of different plant proteins in there so that you're getting, you know, all of the essential amino acids. I see no issue with it. It's fine. It's good. It's great that vegans have, you know, access to products like this. Yeah, what I would also do is just compare the ingredient list of two products that you might want to buy and one might have a hundred ingredient list of all the emulsifiers stabilizers and preservatives that are added and one might just be i don't know soy protein brown rice or something like that and without all the additional additives so maybe just pick the one with less yeah that's a pretty good recommendation sweet okay so next question is by tim sheward and it asks am i missing out on gains if i don't have casein at night Jack, is he missing out on all the gains? So at the end of the day, pun intended, it will just come down to your total daily protein intake. And obviously consuming three to five servings of protein throughout the day will be beneficial for muscle protein synthesis. But if you actually compare chicken or beef to casein, they still take a prolonged period of time to be digested and absorbed. So there's nothing overwhelmingly special about casein. Yeah, originally there was some research that came out that showed people who were consuming casein before bed did have increases in muscle protein synthesis overnight and which did contribute to slightly smaller increases in muscle mass. But the thing about that study was that total daily protein wasn't actually equated. So the people consuming casein at night were consuming far more protein than the other groups. So you would think they'd account for that. Yeah, I know, right? They don't think of these little things. But yeah, they've actually posted like a review in mass, which we speak about all the time, which is, yeah, the review article that's released every month. And when total daily protein is accounted for, there isn't much of a difference consuming casein at night. The only rationale behind consuming casein at night is that it is a slow release protein and it does coagulate in the stomach and essentially it takes around six to eight hours for the amino acids to fully be absorbed. So the theory is that it provides a steady stream of amino acids to your muscles during sleep so that you know you can still induce muscle protein synthesis but like jack said if you have chicken or beef like a big steak at night and then you fall asleep that's still going to take six to eight hours to be absorbed too so thinking about the bigger picture and thinking about total daily protein intake but at the same time having casein or a source of casein like yogurt isn't bad at night either you know it's delicious and some people really like to have that at dinner have that as a dessert so it's perfectly fine Mm, i agree so we have a similar question next by uh, remy patrice and she asks does eating meat every day have any long-term or short-term effects on the microbiome what do you think so yes there is some effects so there's it's a bit of a it depends answer but essentially uh if you have a high consumption of meat and protein and a lower consumption of fruit and vegetables and other 
fiber types, then there will be a higher expression of some microbes in the gut, which have been shown to be less beneficial, obviously, than when you consume a balanced diet of lots of different fiber types, fruits, vegetables, soluble, insoluble fiber, resistant starch. Yeah, so if you're not necessarily meeting your fiber requirements, which are around 14 grams per thousand calories consumed, then yes, it can run into an issue. But again, I think this question is more about, it's not so much the meat that's causing the issue, so it's not so much eating one specific food, but it's more about if you were missing out on whole other food groups. So honestly, it's perfectly fine to eat meat every single day as long as, yeah, you're still consuming enough fiber. And mm. But if you weren't and you were to go on some carnivore diet or a fad diet like that, or even like a ketogenic diet, which is, you know, not really that high protein, but very high fat and quite low in fiber, then yes, you could see some gut dysbiosis and you could run into some issues. But for the average healthy person following a balanced diet and enjoying their chicken and their seafood and their steak every day, no worries, you know, go for it. It's such an excellent source of protein. It's perfectly fine. And yeah, this isn't to take into account meat quality as well. So obviously you have, uh, say, like grass-fed beef compared to deli meats. So deli meats, if you don't know, are actually... Uh, ranked on the Cancer Foundation as a risk food alongside things like smoking because when deli meats are produced, they undergo a process called curing and nitrates are used during this process, which are not actually that beneficial for our health. Yeah, so nitrates are added during the curing process to make food, not only to preserve it, but to also give it that pink looking color. So when you buy things like ham from the deli and it's nice and pink, it's actually got quite a decent amount of nitrates in it, similar to things like salami. But nitrates have been associated with an increased risk of bowel cancer. So obviously, you know, if you have one pepperoni stick, it's not going to kill you. We're not saying that, but consuming a very high amount of processed Mm. meats probably isn't the best thing. Yeah. And say if you have, I know this is probably more common in the US, but if you have like processed meats like deli ham or deli turkey or salami as your main source of protein every single day, or even as having it as a protein in a meal every single day, it's probably not the best idea. Yeah. And in combination with the diet, low in fruits and vegetables, low exercise amounts, high amounts of alcohol, all those other lifestyle factors probably wouldn't be that healthful. Mm. All right, so moving on to the next question. So this one's asked by Macy. How can you prevent or minimize fatigue during the day, particularly after training? Okay, so preventing fatigue during the day after training. What I would look at first is perhaps your post-workout meal, just to make sure that you are providing yourself with the right amount of nutrients in order to recover from that training session. So making sure that you're getting an adequate amount of protein, maybe 25 to 35 grams of high biological value source and a decent amount of carbohydrates, usually around one gram per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates if your total macros allow it post-training. But Jack, what else would you think about if we move nutrition aside? So I would probably say that if you're training hard and I know Macy trains hard, then probably going to be a bit fatigued regardless after training. (laughs) So just means you pushed yourself, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But the only other thing I would say, maybe moving nutrition aside, then I would say ensuring you're relaxing adequately to recover for the next day. 
and a lot of people don't give this enough credit so like literally just putting your feet up and chilling as opposed to doing further activity or doing something that else is mentally draining obviously if you have other commitments then you need to do them but if you if you really want to focus on recovery then um, just literally chilling out Yeah, I totally agree. Really just trying to focus on those big ticket items like getting enough sleep at night, ensuring you have adequate hydration, that you're consuming sufficient calories for your goals, and that those meals are spread evenly throughout the day. And I think really just trying to get yourself into a parasympathetic nervous state. So like Jack said, chilling out because when we are exercising, we are in a heightened state and we are in a more sympathetic nervous state, which is more fight or flight. But after our workout, you know, we want our heart rate to come down. We want our blood pressure to come down. We really just want to relax and parasympathetic nervous state is more rest and digest. So If it is possible, I know some people do, you know, have stressful lives or chaotic lives, like they'll train in the morning and then they'll go straight off to work or they'll go straight to a class or straight to a lab or just something, you know, that they don't really get that time to really chill out. So perhaps if it is in your control, maybe you could try to train at a time of day where afterwards you are able to just relax for a little while. Like if you are able to train in the afternoon after work and then you know you can go home and you can make a nice meal you can take a shower you can stretch you can read watch some tv just really really relax after that if that isn't your control and you can plan your day around that that might be more favorable for recovery and also just managing total daily fatigue yeah uh couldn't have said it any better myself so we'll move on to the next question So this question was asked by Dylan, and it says, I've suffered a few injuries due to sporting motocross accident that will keep me out of the gym for a while. I was pretty deep in an improvement season, so how should I adjust calories to minimize fat gain and loss of muscle? Thanks, and love the podcast. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right, so Jack, how would you tackle this question? Uh, First of all, sorry to hear about your accident. I hope you have a speedy recovery. But essentially what I would do is keep calories at maintenance, ensure that protein is at 2.5 grams per kilo at least. And yeah, it's just an unfortunate time period and definitely wouldn't make sure you're losing weight because that will potentially just accelerate muscle loss. And there's no need to really gain weight either because you're not having any stimulus for muscle growth. So yeah. Yeah, I guess what I would just add to that is that Uh, I'm not entirely sure which part of you is injured. If it is a significant injury and you're not able to train any muscle group at all, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, and that is quite unfortunate. But if perhaps, you know, if you've just broken your arm or if you've broken your leg and you have gotten the all clear from your doctor to still be able to go to the gym and train other body parts, then, for example, you can try to still focus on those, which should be just fine. So I would try to put your focus towards that. And like Jack said, making sure protein's adequate and just trying to stay at maintenance calories, really. But the good news is, is that they've actually done quite a bit of research into um, muscle loss. And as long as you're providing a small stimulus, like literally it could be as small as just training one time per week, then as long as other recovery modalities are accounted for, like protein intake, then it actually is quite uncommon for you to lose a significant amount of muscle loss. 
Um, so you might lose a little bit of strength and neural adaptations, but you won't lose that much muscle, which is really, really good. And also there's also research into the cross-educational phenomenon, which shows that as long as you're training one limb, it can actually maintain up to 80% of the strength in the other limb. So that would actually be applicable for someone who'd broken one arm, but can still train the other arm. And I think Callan Von Moger was actually doing that, you know, when he tore his bicep, which was Oh man, that was awful. But yeah, I guess I just wish you a speedy recovery. And to be honest, muscle memory is a real thing. And I'm sure you'll be back in the gym in no time and making gains and making progress. Okay, so moving on to the next question. So this one's asked by Daniel and he asks tips for people who feel bloated when eating small amounts of veg. Okay, so I'd say that if they're feeling bloated from eating small amounts of veg, it's probably the type of vegetable that they're eating that they're just not responding that well to. So it might have, you know, one of the FODMAPs in that vegetable. So for example, if you were to eat an onion, I know that myself and a lot of people on this planet can't digest onions very well and they cause a bit of havoc in our digestive system. So it could actually just be the type of vegetable that you are eating. Yeah, and what I would do is uh, basically stop eating any vegetables that you think might be calling you to stress and then slowly add back in certain ones at a time, which is basically an exclusion diet where you assess which vegetables are calling, causing you discomfort, slowly add them back in, and then basically you can have an educated decision on which ones you want to permanently remove. And then basically after this is more, I would probably recommend seeing a dietitian for this, but essentially slowly incorporating those foods back in over a period of time to assess whether your responsiveness has changed. Yeah, if you were working alongside a dietitian, they might recommend that you do follow a FODMAP approach, um, which is basically just like what Jack said. So this next question is, do nutrition recommendations for a gaining phase change enhanced versus natty? All right, so I guess first thing we'll say is that Jack and I aren't experienced with coaching enhanced athletes, and we don't actually know that much, to be honest, about enhanced athletes, so just putting that out there hashtag natural natty but what i would say is that i would imagine that they're actually pretty damn similar per kilogram of total body weight i think that protein requirements uh carbohydrate requirements and fat requirements really are going to be the same the only thing about enhanced athletes is that generally they are much larger they're much heavier so obviously the total amount of energy and each a gram of each macronutrient is going to be higher but what's actually pretty interesting is that because of the drug protocols that enhanced athletes run it actually increases the efficiency of muscle protein synthesis so per kilogram of body weight an enhanced athlete would actually require slightly less protein to maintain their total muscle mass compared to a natural athlete, which I think is really, really interesting. And I learned that from Broderick Chavez, who is, you know, a highly renowned biologist in the enhanced realm of bodybuilding. But yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. But even then, you know, I think that for an enhanced athlete, recommendations would just be pretty similar. So around 2 to 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight 
of protein and fats could probably be around 0.6 to 1 gram per kilogram of body weight and then the remaining calories could just come from carbohydrates. So pretty similar but obviously enhanced individuals due to their total body weight, they're probably burning more calories overall compared to a natural. All right, so next question. So the next question is by Jay Cassinato, and he asks, helpful tips when you are stuck at a certain training weight for hypertrophy training. So I think that this is certainly something that we've both experienced. So how Mm. have you tackled this? So yeah, I've actually been reading the muscle and strength pyramids and Eric Helms actually goes over this. I like how he explains it. So essentially, if you're training for hypertrophy, your increases in strength will be purely due to increases in muscle mass and to a certain extent uh, neurological improvements as well. So as, if you get, as you get better with the movement pattern, whereas for strength training, it'll be a variety of factors, not just uh, the amount of muscle you're gaining. So in that respect, if you're a beginner or an intermediate trainee, you should be saying, seeing fairly consistent strength gains. And because I don't know what uh, type of trainee you are or how advanced you are or what your program is. It can be difficult to say why you are stuck, but essentially what it usually comes down to is what sort of programming you're running and also what your recovery is like as well, which ties in with the programming. So for example, if you start a a block of programming and you go 10 out of 10 intensity on the first session, say a, a flat barbell bench press and you do 100 kilos for 10 reps, and you grind out the last rep and you could barely finish it or you fail on the last rep where do you go from that you don't you can't go anywhere because you're not giving yourself a chance to progress if that makes sense yeah there's no leeway you're Mm. literally at zero reps in reserve and because with hypertrophy a lot of the strength will be due to muscle gain you're not going to be able to gain muscle on that weak basis to increase and so that's basically my quick summary of it so what I would do is start a training block with a slightly lower intensity, and then that gives you leeway to increase in strength throughout. And also, it'll allow you to recover better as well. So or another, some other things will be your total weekly volume. Is it between 10 to 20 sets? If you're doing 30 sets for chest each week, I'm not surprised that you aren't gaining in strength. Other things such as nutrition, are you in a deficit or a surplus? Is your sleep good? Is your water intake good? What's your pre-workout meal? So many different factors we can look at. So Yeah, and also you can also use like a reps in reserve kind of approach. So like Jack said, you can start off with a slightly lower intensity to begin your training block, but you can also start with, you know, maybe like three reps in reserve one week. And then as you move up, you try to go to two reps in reserve, one rep in reserve, all the way up into your overreaching week, which is around zero reps in reserve to one rep in reserve. But I think the final, actually I'll add one more point is that don't limit yourself to a certain rep range either. So for example, if you were on bench press and you were just going between six and eight reps kind of thing, like we have to be realistic for a big compound movement like bench, which moves as slow as a snail for some people in terms of strength gains. If you can't increase the weight, don't be scared to just do try to do an extra rep or two because it is about total volume load. So for example, if you were lifting 100 kilograms, if you could pump out an extra rep, like do nine reps or 10 reps, that's an extra 100 to 200 kilograms of load 
on your chest and on your triceps compared to just trying to go up to 102.5 and you're only getting six or seven reps. So it's not always about the weight. Sometimes you do have to look at the bigger picture and think about total volume load. So the next question is by Lloyd who asks, thoughts on four day full body routine. For example, taking an upper lower split across the week. So it wouldn't be my first choice for someone and because it's quite unconventional, but there are athletes such as Eric Helms who are actually doing a five-day full-body routine at the mo- at the moment, and he did that throughout his prep. So it's definitely achievable. I would say it's probably more appropriate for a beginner, and that's not saying Eric's a beginner, of course, but essentially I think it would be better to look at something else if you're a more intermediate lifter. But I do recommend checking out Jeff Nippard's new video on YouTube, and he goes into quite a lot of a lot of depth of doing a full body routine multiple times a week. Yeah, I would say it's going to be highly individual and just see what works best for you. Because, for example, if you're taking two upper and two lower days, and like you're just combining those together, you might actually have slightly better recovery capacity and you might be able to perform better on some of those movements each day. Because for example, if you were to do, you know, a bunch of lower body exercises on the same day, like you were going to do squats, RDL, leg press, leg curl, leg extension, that's just a random example. But by the time that you get to leg extension and leg curl at the end, after doing squats, RDLs, and leg press, you might just be a bit fatigued. And for example, and you might not be able to perform as well on those movements, lift as much weight as for as many reps. So if you were to split it up throughout the week, you might just feel more fresh and you might be able to lift slightly more weight, do slightly more reps, and over a chronic time period, this could lead to slightly more muscle hypertrophy. But again, it's going to be highly individual, what works best for your schedule and how you feel you perform and you recover the best. Yeah. So this next question is asked by Car Hansen and it says, do calories count on my birthday? I read somewhere that they don't count. <laughs> so I actually read once that only 99.9% of your calories count on your birthday. <laughs> Does that mean you get like one extra gram of carb that doesn't count? Yeah, yeah, especially on a prep. So <laughs> Bonus carb. <laughs> but that would only be if you're eating a thousand carbs, right? Mate, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Damn, that's you one day. <laughs> okay, so Kara is one of my clients and she's going to be doing fitness and sports model in a few weeks for season B, which is super exciting. And her birthday is next week on the 17th of July. And Kara, just as a matter of fact, this does happen to land on your second high carb day. So (laughs) that's very good timing. And I know that you are a macro wizard. So I have no doubt that you can probably squeeze in a nice little treat on your birthday. So yeah, you know, that that's my little birthday gift to you. (laughs) High carbs. (laughs) Woohoo. So this next question is actually by one of my clients and it's basically about optimizing training and nutrition for individuals that are over 40 and whether if you are a slightly older athlete, does this come with any other recommendations as well or anything to watch out for? So yeah, as we know, basically the older you get, the less testosterone you'll produce as a male. 
and this does have an effect on recovery and ability to build muscle. However, that being said, uh, doesn't mean we can optimize all the other modalities of training and nutrition, such as sleep, protein intake, being in an energy surplus, and hydration, all the other aspects of recovery. And the example I I will provide is basically if someone is a younger athlete, so let's say 25, they're producing the optimal amount of all their hormones, and however their training and nutrition is crap compared to someone who is like, let's say 45, and he is optimizing training, nutrition, sleep, their strength is going up, then like who would be getting more muscle? Like it's a, I think it's a valid point to make. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. Mm. Yeah, especially the interesting thing about protein and protein requirements, they actually increase as an individual gets older. It's usually after the age of around 50, and that's just due to um, sarcopenia, which is the natural degeneration of... Sarcopenia. (laughs) Sarcopenia? Okay. (laughs) Sarcopenia? I think you said sacro. Isn't it sarcopenia? It's S-A-R-C-O. Sarcro. Oh, like sarcromeres. No, it's sarcopenia. Okay, I don't know what's going on with the accents here. Canadian versus Australian slash British. <laughs> anyway, it's the natural degeneration of muscle loss. And so for an older individual, you're actually going to require around 2.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. And you're also, your leucine threshold is slightly higher. So you want to go closer to probably that three grams of leucine just to make sure that you are maximally inducing muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, that would be pretty much it. Like I would maybe say taking a bit more consideration into recovery and progression in the gym, you might not be able to progress as quickly. But yeah, other than that, it's pretty damn similar, I would say. So this next question is asked by May, who I know from the UQ gym. Thank you for your question. So it says, tips on eating out and how do you balance tracking macros when you go out with friends? So I think this is a very common question and is applicable to basically everyone on the planet who actually does track their macros because obviously you need to be flexible and you need to be able to still go out with your friends and your family and enjoy social occasions because we can't just always isolate ourselves to our homes and track everything perfectly. So this is a really good question. So what do you do when you go out to eat? So I just estimate. So I would hope that as a dietitian, I've got a pretty good idea of the macronutrient makeup of various types of food and also their average caloric content. But when I go out, I I will, one, I'll choose something that I want to eat. But if I was being very strict on, you know, trying to hit a certain amount of protein or carbohydrates or fat, which really doesn't happen that often, to be honest, especially because I've been in an improvement season for so long, I really do allow myself a lot more flexibility. But if I was trying to hit things more accurately, I would just pick a meal that was easier to track. So for example, if you were to get a nice salmon filet with some potatoes and a few greens or a nice garden salad on the side, something like that, compared to a dish that would be very, very difficult to track and your estimations would probably be way off. Like if you were to go to a Thai restaurant and get a green curry that has 
you know, various types of meat in it and a bunch of different vegetables. And you have no idea how much coconut milk they added. Like it would just be very difficult to track that. And even if you typed in green curry into MyFitnessPal, it would just be like a stab in the dark because there'd be 10,000 entries. So Mm. I say if you want to be more accurate, go for things that are divided on the plate and would be easier to track. What would you say? Yeah, I would say something pretty similar. So for myself, when I go out, I don't usually use my fitness pal to choose the food. What I actually do is search protein, carbs, and fat, and then estimate however much of each one is in that meal. So say if it's a burger, I'll say I'll break it down into protein, carbs, and fat, and say protein, there's a certain amount in the bun, certain amount in the patty, and maybe the cheese as well. And then fat will be, again, the bun, the burger, the cheese, and whatever whatever else is on it. You might have bacon and an egg as well. And then the, what's left? The protein. What else is on your burger? <laughs> um, Pineapple. But, but yeah, essentially, that's pretty much it. So I and say if I go to, I don't think grilled is a good example because they actually have the macros, which is nice. But say like a random restaurant, I, I won't try and search up the just a random burger on my fitness pal. I'll just break it down myself. Yeah, and I'd say that if you wanted to be more flexible with it and you weren't so concerned about hitting specific macronutrients, but you just more wanted to get in the ballpark of the same amount of energy that you would have eaten from another meal, just save yourself a certain amount of calories for that meal and then you can estimate the total amount of energy in that meal. But again, I just want to emphasize, like, enjoy your meal out with your friends. Like, you're probably eating four times a day. It's one meal, and it's probably one of the only times you're actually going out that week. So out of 28 meals during the week, this is, you're eating 27 that are tracked to a T, and then you're enjoying one out with your friends. So yeah, enjoy it. Cool. Okay, so this next question, uh, this will be our last listener question because we're coming up on time. So this next question is by Daniel Labella and he asks about the training environment and how that influences us because we've just changed gyms. So I've got to say, I love Worlds. I love Worlds so much. I love the atmosphere. I love how the sunlight comes into the gym. I love the breeze. I love the fresh air. I love all the equipment, all the hammer strength equipment. And yeah, I think that your training environment massively influences your training session and how how much you enjoy it over a long time period. And like I like Jack and I have been training at UQ Gym now for our entire uni lives. Like basically, I started training there in 2012. Jeez, man, you're ancient. <laughs> it's like seven and a half years. Yeah. Holy flips. Okay, so Jack is <laughs> old, old timer. <laughs> Yes, he is. Um, he's a loyal gym member. But yeah, so we've been training at UQ for years. I've only been there four and a half years. So that's nothing compared to your seven and a half G's. But yeah, you know, UQ was awesome while we were there because uh, it was very, very convenient. It's a huge gym. Obviously, you're surrounded by students. And I really liked that environment, especially like during exam period, you could always kind of like blow off some stress and some steam together um, during swap back week. But yeah, I made heaps of friends at UQ gym. I, I loved working there. But now changing to a more bodybuilding style life like gym, I just I love it so much. I love the atmosphere and being surrounded by other people who 
are, you know, very invested in their health and their fitness. We're surrounded by a lot more competitors as well and people who really go to the gym with purpose and they love to train hard and Oh, I love it too. I, I, I really, really, really like it. So I think, and I'm enjoying every single session. Like literally, I don't want to leave the gym and my training, I feel like it's never been as good. It's never been as productive. I just feel amazing and I can't wait to keep training in that similar type of environment. Yeah, I really like the gym as well, the new equipment and the design of it and all that sort of stuff. But it probably hasn't influenced my actual training performance. Like my training performance was just as good at UQ. It's just more of like a different environment and an atmosphere. Like I don't think being there will make me stronger or make me perform better, but I do, I do prefer it. And I do like the atmosphere regardless, uh, atmosphere there regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So do you, do you think that World Gym, you're stronger at World Gym than at UQ? I feel like just because I've been at UQ for so long and especially training there every day and literally working there almost every day for like eight hours, you know, like it's just a really, really nice change of scene. And I'm literally like addicted to the change of scene because it's new and it's refreshing and it's very exciting and so, yeah, I do feel like I actually look forward to training a lot more now because I'm just in a new environment and I feel very confident there. Like I've, I spoke about this on another podcast too, but because I've worked at UQ for so many years, I never really felt confident like wearing a sports crop or anything. I thought that it might be a bit inappropriate because I'm a staff member and I'm surrounded by students and stuff. But ever since my huge $800 rider wear haul arrived, I've just been like feeling so confident and so happy in all my new clothes and training every day in a new color. I'm, I've gotten so many comments on Instagram, which is kind of funny. But yeah, I just, there's something about having new activewear and being in a new epic bodybuilding gym that gets you so freaking fired up to train and hit PBs. So I'm loving it. I'm loving it so much. All right. So that is coming up on the end of our episode, but we will just finish with our very last question. And that is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, it's your turn. So yeah, as I mentioned before, I've been reading the Muscle and Strength Pyramid book and really well written by Eric Helms and learned so much from that. So more than one thing, but essentially a lot of different key points about like volume, uh, frequency, intensity, uh, progression, and all things like that. So one of the things that I learned in particular was about increasing volume. And it is quite, there are lots of different ways to design a program. And for example, Mike Isretail and Steve Hall both start at their minimum effective volume and then increase their uh, weekly sets until they overreach at their maximum effective volume, sorry, maximum recoverable, recoverable volume, and then they deload. However, Eric does a slightly different approach where he keeps volume static throughout the training block and he only increases it in quotation marks when you earn the right to. So essentially when you stall, say on a barbell bench press, you stall and you can't progress at all, uh, that's when you add another set to um, basically input additional stimulus. And yeah, it's just another method of doing things. And I think both have merit and both can be applied to different individuals as well. So it's great to be able to have more, I don't know, tools in my toolkit, basically. 
Yeah, for sure. It's so great because it's really just reinforcing that there are a hell of a lot of ways to train and there's a hell of a lot of ways to progressively overload and develop muscle over time. Yeah. Okay. So one thing that I learned this week, it certainly got to do with training as well. So recently the new mass article just came out and they published a paper looking at velocity-based training, which I thought was really interesting because essentially they were looking at whether velocity or the speed at which someone lifts a certain weight can contribute to the total amount of force produced. So if anyone studied physics or biomechanics, you would know that force equals mass times velocity. So in terms of weightlifting training, the mass would be the total amount of weight that you're lifting, and velocity would be the speed at which you lift that weight. And then as we know from the amount of force produced, if we produce more force during a movement where we're we're going to recruit more muscle fibers, more motor units, and over time that can contribute to greater hypertrophy in that muscle. So if you think about that equation, and for example, if you have your mass, if you slightly reduce the mass, so slightly reduce the weight, but you lifted that weight faster, you might actually be able to produce more force. So yeah, they published this paper, which I thought was really interesting. They were looking at participants who were squatting all the way up from their 30% to 90% of 1RM, I believe. And they were instructed to lift the bar as fast as they can. So as like squat as fast as they could. And they were attached to a bunch of amplitudes and they were looking at EMG data. And what they found is that after around 50% of their 1RM, EMG kind of plateaued. So they actually weren't producing that like a significantly different amount of force between 50% and 90% of their 1RM when they were squatting as fast as they could. So Again, this is very, very early research, but it really got me thinking and, you know, mass kind of instilled the idea in me that like this could be applicable to people's training programs to not always think about, you know, lifting more weight, but more about exercise execution. And an exercise that really comes to mind for me would be something like shoulder press. So instead of always trying to go up and weight in shoulder press, for example, you could try to do the movement a little bit faster, which I just thought was really interesting because overall you would be producing more force. But then again, there is the argument that you want to think about, you know, the eccentric component of the movement. So, for example, you would just try to make the concentric component of the movement as fast as possible while slowing down the eccentric so that you could really get a nice stretch on the muscle. But anyway, I thought that was pretty interesting. And yeah, who knows? Maybe there will be exercise prescriptions in the future for slightly lower the weight, but just lift weights faster. All right, so that is the end of our 29th episode. Thank you again so much for tuning in. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you later, guys.